Happy Fourth of July weekend. Hope you guys enjoyed uh, your time off. Apparently, I could not get rid of it because I wore red, white, and blue today, and I didn't even realize it. <laughs> so, um, I just want to start by sharing a thanks and appreciation for the Fourth of July. We live in a country where we can come here on a Sunday morning in a, in a school and worship God. Not everybody gets that. And so we are truly blessed in that fact alone. So I'm up here today because Josh is on a well-deserved vacation. He has been gone for two weeks. Uh, if anybody deserves a uh, vacation, it is Josh. He serves us so well. And so him and his family um, are out in Colorado, if I believe right, having a wonderful time. And so I get to teach today. I'm so happy to be here. And with that, I get to teach on the final teaching of Jesus in Matthew. That leads up to Passion Week. And so as we start that, I want to share a personal story. I moved here about 18 months ago uh, from Denver, and we became uh, members and active in New Heights about 15 months ago. About that time, I met a gentleman by the name of Steve. He uh, was a friend of a friend. And have you ever had those people in your life that are just blessings from God? That every time you meet with them, they're are encouraging, supportive. They challenge you on good spiritual questions. How are you living that life? How are you loving your family? How are you loving your neighbors? How are you loving anybody you interact with? And every time you wait, walk away from them, there are, you're just encouraged. This is what my friend Steve, or mentor as I like to call him is. He's a retired guy in the area, and he just pours out to me. And I have uh, the challenge of having two kids under the age of two, and Aiden, my youngest, is four months old. And to show kind of Steve's love for us is when, after my wife went through labor, an all-morning labor, and then we were just starving. And so I texted Steve, can you grab a pizza for us? He's like, sure, where? We called an order. He was there in 25 minutes. This was the middle of a Friday on a weekday. I don't know what he did, what he was doing. He didn't care. He just dropped it, came, and served us and loved us, and stayed for five minutes, say we're happy for you, now enjoy some time with your family, and be gone, and I'm gone. And that meant so much to me. That was so encouraging. The joke we have is he actually got there before my in-laws did, and so he actually got to meet my son, and they're neighbors, and so they rag on each other for that all the time. But that's just the type of man Steve is. If you need something, he's there. If you want prayer, he's there. And today we're talking about the sheep and the goats, this passage about judgment, and at the heart of it, it's actually what Steve does to me and who he is as a friend. That's the heart of this passage. And so don't get too scared with the fire and brimstone. There's a little bit of that, but there's a lot of love in this passage. And so with that, let's dive into the scripture. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates his sheep from his goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to all those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take the inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I would need a clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger, invite you in, or needed clothes and clothing you? 
When did we see you ill or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the internal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and I gave you nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go on to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. Whew, you ready for this? <laughs> this is a hard passage. And I will say, of Matthew, this is the most difficult convoluted passage that is hard to interpret. Thank you, Josh, for taking a vacation today. <laughs> My turn to be here. But no, with that, it's a beautiful passage. It's often one we just don't dive into because there is some fire and brimstone to it that is talking about judgment. But there's also a beauty to it as well. And that's what I really want to share with you today. To start, we need to go back to all of Matthew, Okay. So Matthew is set into about seven or eight parts. There's an introduction in the first three chapters. There's five teaching sections. There's Passion Week and kind of the conclusion. And so I've been here for 15 months, and we were still in Matthew back then. I actually looked back. The first sermon was December 10th of uh, 2017. So we're coming up on a little past 18 months. So that's hence the little review, because we are talking the end of 25. So this is going to be the last teaching section Jesus has before Passion Week. It's a bit of a, a climax of his teaching. And so the first teaching section is Matthew 4 through 7. This is announcing God's kingdom. This is the Beatitudes. The meek shall inherit the earth. What is it like? What is God's kingdom like for him and for us on earth? The second section is 8 through 10. Jesus brings kingdoms into people's lives. This one's very easy and kind of redundant. Healing, 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 healing. Raise someone from the dead, healing, healing, and healing. That's what it is to be in Jesus' kingdom. He loves our physical health, our emotional health, and our spiritual health, and he cares for us. Then we get to the third one. This is Matthew 11 through 13. This is people's response to Jesus, and there's three responses. One is, oh my goodness, you are Messiah. Few people had that response. The other ones were like, oh my goodness, you are a prophet. You are a wonderful person. Not quite sure if you're the Messiah. But you are someone special. And the third response is the Pharisees and Sadducees saying, I want to kill you. I don't believe you. You're not from God at all. Then we go into the fourth section, the different expectations about the Messiah. And this is where the Pharisees really start to come at odds. Their expectation of the Messiah was this military leader who's going to overthrow Caesar and the, the Roman Empire and take over and have this heaven on earth. Jesus came teaching and healing and hanging out with the prostitutes, the poor, and the tax collectors. Not really what they were expecting. And then to follow that, there's this clash of kingdoms between the Pharisees and God's people. And if you remember Sean's sermon about six weeks ago about the seven woes, Jesus was mean. He laid into these people, saying that you make a convert and you make them worse than someone who goes to hell. So 
we are now at the end of this section. He has chastised and called out the Pharisees, and now he is in the temple sitting with his disciples, teaching them. The last message he wants to give to them before he is, excuse me, arrested, tried, crucified. And so it's an important message. So speaking to the disciples, he says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will gather before him and he will separate the people from one another. And this is a topic we don't like to talk about because it's kind of uncomfortable. Judgment is coming. Period. For a lot of the disciples and the followers of Jesus, they thought it would happen before they even died. That was 2,000 years ago, and we're still waiting. If you think about the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talons, and a lot of the ones leading up to this is the idea that we don't know when God is coming. Therefore, we need to love God and others as best we can and to prepare. And so after that, he, te- he goes to this to say, okay, you prepare for it. When it comes, this is what it's going to be like. And this is a fulfillment of some Old Testament and New Testament eschatology or end times. And so this refers specifically to Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. Son of Man, a title often he was called. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is doing something very specific in this teaching. He is saying, I am that person. I am the son of man who will be coming at the end of days, and I am the one who will judge you to receive eternal life or eternal damnation. What a statement. Before, there's been hints at the Son of Man and talks about it, but to say this just straightforward, it's the first time Jesus says it like this. And so for us today, what does this mean? Sometimes we forget, we get so used to our lives, we forget this fact that judgment is coming. It could come tonight. It could come before I finish teaching. It could come in a thousand years. We don't know. But Jesus says, live as if it's tomorrow. And he's going to go on and say, okay, what does that exactly mean? So let's continue. All the nations will gather before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, as I was studying up on this, on why the sheep and the goats, so this whole passage is referred to as the sheep and the goats, but it's actually just a small analogy. He says, he will separate the people as one, from one another as a shep- shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Ooh, that is hard to say. Shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. It's just an example. And so this is what that example looks like. Here's a picture of sheep and goats together. In ancient Israel and in the Middle East in the first century, they would have them in the same pastures. A lot of um, shepherds do this still today because goats and sheep do very well in the same pastures together. And what happens is they're in the pastures grazing for months, and they were brought in either to be shaved for wool or to be slaughtered for meat. 
And so when they come in, they're covered with dust and grime and straw and dirt and everything else in there. And they are difficult to separate. Even this picture, they're hard. This is just an example, an analogy the Lord is saying that at the end of days when I judge people, it is not going to be easy on the outside to determine who is a follower of Jesus and who is not. And for me, as a 21st century American control freak, I don't like the fact that it's all on him and I'm not 100% sure of what that looks like. But that's his message. He is the one who's going to decide. But with that, he gives us a lot of hints on what that decision is going to take. And so as this section in Matthew 25, 21 through 25 is about the clashing of kingdoms, the Pharisees and God's children, I thought it would be nice to compare. So in the Pharisees, they pray on the gold in the temple. Remember, this is one of the seven woes. They sit at the seats of honor at, at uh, events, banquets, feasts. It's very restrictive. Again, the 613 Mishnah or laws of the Old Testament was trying to protect the people, but it was often seen as something that was very restrictive. I can't do stuff. They would give a tenth of what they own to like the cent, like they'll separate the kernel. They're, they're, that one's a tenth. This is all mine. They would clean the outsides of themselves. They'd walk around in um, with ash on their head and sackcloth, looking like, look how holy I am. They would do these outward deeds to show who I am and who I follow. So that's the Pharisees. They looked great. It was the pillar of what you should look like, according to the Jews. Then we had Jesus come, and we had God's children. And it's a little different kingdom. We pray quietly where people don't see. We place others first as Jesus placed them first. It's a freedom of love. Because we are loved, we can do so much. We give from a cheerful heart. We give a tenth, but we're not limited to that. We spend time with God, and in that we become like him. Not so that we look good on the outside, but as the proverb said, our heart is the wellspring of us. And so we become like him in our heart. The acts we do are from the grace we've received, not a command to do, because we've been loved, we know what great love looks like, and so we give it away. And the part of the message here is these look very similar on the outside. A lot of the difference is actually in the heart, is in the nuance. This is what Jesus is saying in this analogy of the sheep and the goats. On the outside, the deeds, the person may look very similar. Only I know their heart. An interesting piece happens here, too. If we look throughout Matthew, he talks so much about the heart. The heart is the wellspring. What you do, do you love me in your heart? Have you accepted me in your heart? And at this point, he flips it. His last teaching before Passion Week, he flips and says, guess what? Your deeds matter. And if you're anything like me, you're like, what happened? We were just talking about heart, but now you're talking about deeds. And that's what the next section goes to. Oh, I forgot about this picture. <laughs> so the last time I got to preach, it was on uh, Matthew 19 of the Pharisees. And this is a political cartoon that was actually in that sermon. And it is the perfect embodiment of this Pharisee's kingdom and God's kingdom. It says, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The Pharisees at the bottom say, it's simple. We'll buy a bigger needle. 
This is what it was about for them. They would go by the leather of the law. They'd try to nickel and dime their actions to skirt into heaven. And this is the truth of it. You don't nickel and dime your way into heaven. You don't trick God to receive salvation. You love him or you don't. And the Pharisees, if outwardly, if they had all these actions that looked like they loved God. But did they really love him? Did they really care? And so this is the verse where it's a little uncomfortable because he talks specifically about deeds. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me, and I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And so there's six things I have underlined here. And as I was studying this, there are five of these were first century culture expectations. Here on the left. Hungry, thirsty, stranger, knee closed, sick, and prison. This is what they did. And this is an interesting point. Pagans, they did that too. It's just how people live. It's Middle Eastern culture. If someone comes to you and you're hungry, you feed them. If they come to you and you're thirsty, you give them thirsty. If they come to you and they don't have any clothes, you clothe them. By the way, they only had one or two pairs of clothes, not the dozens we have. If a stranger came, they wouldn't lock the doors. They'd say, come on in, what we have is yours. So the separation here between believers and non-believers was nothing. Except the last one, prison. Something he added. And so I contextualize these for today. Just came up with some ideas. What do we do in 21st century? We do meals for parents. Wonderful thing we do here. We were blessed by that uh, with our second son. We pray for the downtrodden. We give to those in need. We care for the poor. We cry with the hurting and we promote social justice. These over here, the 21st century ones, is that different than how a lot of non-believers act? I think about the Good Samaritan. It was actually an example of Jesus' love was a non-believer who showed God's love. And I think this day and age, particularly coworkers or people in any type of groups, they do this. They help them when they have kids. They pray for, or maybe not pray for them, but they support them when they're down. When they're sick, they care for them. And this is something that I found so intriguing as I'm studying this passage, is this isn't anything crazy. These are basic things from the first century, and these are fairly basic things that you do for someone you care about today. <coughs> Excuse me. And so at the end of the days, in judgment, we will be judged on very specific actions. These. And they're not that hard. They're fairly straightforward. It was culture expectations then, and I think there's culture expectations now. And so what is Jesus really trying to get to? And this is what I believe it is. We love through our actions. How does my wife know I love her? Because I tell her part of it. Do my actions support it? For almost 10 years, I was a, a counselor and worked with addiction and couples. And I'd have a lot of couples come in, yes, I absolutely love my spouse. And I'd just look at their face. I'm like, thank you for saying that. Your actions say otherwise. This is what Jesus is saying. 
do your actions actually show your love for him? Because if we've been poured out, or if we've had this love poured out on us, and we're really impacted by it, we can't help but share it. As we continue through this passage, we go to this, verse 37. Then the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty or give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or did he enclosed and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I truly tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. Actions come from the heart. If someone isn't loved, they can't do this stuff. It's just a checklist. It's something we should do rather than something I want to do. And in this, it reminds me of Luke 6.45. A good man brings good deeds out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil man brings out the evil things stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. This is why Jesus chastised the Pharisees so much. You clean the outside of a bowl, but your inside is dirty. This is the same message. Is your heart clean? You will do wonderful things to people around you. And so in this, there's this little phrase that snuck up on me. Least of these brothers and sisters in mine. And so as I was studying this, I was reading some commentaries, and I thought this meant you love everyone, anyone you come across. Seems kind of makes sense with a lot of Jesus' teaching. And I read a commentary, and it said, no, it means something different. So I did what most people do when they study. I closed that book and went to another commentary, tried to find one that agreed with me. That one didn't. So on and so forth, and I read about eight or ten, ten of them, and I said, okay, I'm wrong. This doesn't mean everyone. And I was like, interesting. I thought Jesus says to love everyone. But here, again, his final teaching before he's arrested, this is what he chooses to teach on. He says, love the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. Luke 6, 32 talks about this. If you love someone who loves you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that? Even sinners do that. It is easy to love those like us. It's hard to love those who are different, who maybe don't love us for return, right? And so if Jesus is talking to his disciples and saying, this is different, pagans, non-believers love people in their community with. They do it well. What all the commentaries said without question is, Love of these brothers and sisters of mine means how well do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you do all these normal cultural expectations to the people sitting next to you today? And this is that point where I enjoy preaching, but I kind of got to like hunker down before I do because every time he just kind of gives me a sucker punch. (laughs) And this was it. How well do I love everybody in this room? and I'm the first one to be guilty of it. A lot of the people I know in this room are similar age with young kids, and we play together or we're in community group together. You see, Matthew wrote Matthew to Jewish Christians who still had some of these strong Jewish traditions, such as 
giving favoritism to the wealthy or influential or the people like themselves. And Jesus right here is rebuking that in the Jewish, said, no, love every brother and sister well. This is his last teaching before he goes away and say, take care of each other. You're in the world, a fallen and sinful world. You need each other. This is the purpose of the fellowship of believers, of the church. And Jesus says, guess what? I'm going to judge you on how well you love them. Not just your heart, on your actions. In James 2, it says, faith without deeds are nothing. Abraham was considered righteous because he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Faith and deeds, they have to go together or they're not. That's what the sheep and goats paragraph are about the Pharisees. The Pharisees look like it. They have the deeds, but they're not in their heart. And I think the truth of it, too, is there's going to be the other side of there's going to be some believers, professing Christians, who say, I love Jesus, but they're not involved in a church or a small group or community group. They don't serve. They don't let people in. They don't ask for support, and they don't let people love them. At the end of the day, is that someone who says, I really love Jesus in my heart? Thankfully, I'm not the one who has to make that decision, <laughs> but I don't think so. I think Jesus says, if you really love me, you love each other well. And with that, some people think, well, this is the holy huddle then, right? You know those churches who only interact with their fellow believers and don't interact with anybody else outside? That is not what he's talking about at all. And we'll get there in a minute. And so I'm going to ask you this question. Look to your left. Look to your right. Do you know the names of everybody in your row? How many of them have you sat next to for six months, a year, two years, and know their name but have never gone out to dinner or invited them over to your place or asked how to pray and support them? For some of you, you're like, I've never seen that person before. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> but I know if you're like me, we sit next to the same spot every week, and we know those people around us, and I know their names, and I don't know much else than that. Jesus is calling me out on this one. How well do I love my brothers and sisters? And the answer is sometimes well when they're a lot like me. When they're not, I, I can do much better. Not fire and brimstone about the judgment, but some hard truths of at the end of the days, he's going to judge us by how well we love each other, not the world. Sometimes I think we can use it as an excuse. Let's go evangelize and minister to these people. What if the person next to you is struggling? Are you taking care of them? So with that, we are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We love through our actions, and we have to show those to the people in this room and the people in greater Christendom, the body of believers, period. And if not, it's one of the criteria. We love to, to bury our heads in the sand and say, oh, I don't really know what God's going to judge us on the end of the day. He said it very clearly right here. This is about as close to roadmap as we can get. As we continue in the passage, then he will say to those on the left, to the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. 
I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal right. We are made righteous by our acts. Not our acts alone. Deeds and acts. Because faith without works is nothing. And that's what this is. That's what you're talking about. And as I was going through this, I found this quote in one of the commentaries. And whoever wrote this, I'm really sorry. I forgot what commentary it was and I couldn't find it again. He said this, the fault of the cursed is not so much that they have done wrong, but that they have failed to do right. Apathy. Selfishness. I'll let them take care of them and I'll take care of me. That is the fault of the goats and those that are going to be damned to eternal punishment. They say, I love you. I love you so much, but oh, I got to go over here and do this. And I think that this is a, was really convicting for me in the 21st century. I love to love and support people. When convenient, when it doesn't mess with my schedule, my kid's bedtime. Don't mess with my kid's bedtime. Things get bad. But isn't that the truth? And I think about that first story that I told earlier about my friend Steve, who on a Friday morning after my wife and I gave birth to our son, brought us pizza and left. I have no idea how much it interrupted his day. He didn't mention it. He didn't care. He just said, here you go. I love you guys. Bye. Can we love like that? When it's inconvenient, when it challenges us, when it puts us at odds? That's a lot harder to do. And Again, there's this idea of that holy huddle, those churches who just keep together and like, Satan, non-believers, stay away. It's not what he's talking about. And I think this is the, the real beauty of this message. Why do we need to love each other? I said earlier, I was an addiction therapist for 10 years. Um, and I worked with a lot of people. And to recover from addiction and to really have growth and change in your life, there's one thing that is most important over anything else. Well, two, actually. One, you have to admit you have a problem and need help. Two, you have to have community. You have to have support. You have to have people that have your back on the good days and the bad. And this is what Jesus is telling his disciples right before he goes away. Hey, you are in a dark, fallen world. Support each other. Be there. Because you can't do it on your own. I love this vertical time I get with God, but sometimes that's really hard when he doesn't talk back to me. Be honest. You know how he loves to, to work in our lives? Through each other in this room. Through my friend Steve who blessed me. Through so many people in my community group who blessed me. We are God's hands and feet. And I was thinking about a missionary to, let's say, the Middle East or Africa. To a place where there's no, not a lot of believers. What would happen if they went there for four years and ministered and didn't talk to another single believer that whole time and were surrounded by non-believers? I don't know about you, but I wouldn't make it. 
I'd break. I need you guys. And I'm not talking about if I'm doing missions overseas. I mean it doing missions and living life here in Northwest Arkansas. It's not easy. It's hard. I need your support. And this is what Jesus is saying. I'm going away, but take care of each other. Because this is the thing. At the end, he wants us to love everyone. How can we love everyone? When we are loved. When we are filled up. When we are cared for. That's it. That's when. When I'm running on empty and running on fumes, I am short. My temper is short. I'm snippy. It's not good. He's saying the same thing here. Go and love the world. Love everyone. But make sure you take care of each other because if not, how good of an ambassador are you going to be? And I think we love this idea of doing evangelism and missions sometimes to the point where we forget about each other. Jesus said, take care of the poor and the widows. Take care of the ostracized. In the Old Testament or the New Testament in Greek, when they used the word poor, it meant financially poor. It meant ostracized. And so Matthew's a tax collector who wrote this would be considered poor because it was ostracized without community. We need each other. We need each other really badly. That is what the message of the sheep and goats passage is, is you will be judged by how well you love each other because we all need it. And we need it so badly. And so here's my question for you. Are you discernible from non-believers? There's a quote attributed to Thomas Akemptis, a 14th century monk that says, preach the gospel to all the world, and if necessary, use words. Where the people at your office, or when you go to the playground with your kids, or wherever you interact with people, will they know a difference in you from a non-believer? Because I bet you they'll take care of a coworker when they're sick, or when they have a new baby, or when they have to go on vacation and help them out on work, and so on and so forth. Do we do that amongst ourselves? Do we do something even different? Because we are so loved, we show up. That's what this message is about, and it's a beautiful message. God put the organization of the church together because we couldn't do it by ourselves. That's why we're here today, right? Sundays and community groups, we do it because life is hard. And I need, I need someone who has my back. What a beautiful message to go out with. Talk about going out with a bang. And then the next day, he's taken away. This is how we really do it. We spend time with God and we spend time with each other. Again, I'm thinking about my wife. I'm thinking about some friends I've had for 10 years or so. You notice those people you're really close with, you start picking up on their mannerisms or you phrase something the same way they say it, and you're like, oh my goodness, that is so my wife's talking. When we spend time with people, we pick those up, right? How do we learn from God? How do we become like God? We spend time in his word and begin to use phrases that the scripture uses. We spend time with fellow believers, and we start to say the same things because it soaks into us. In 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about bad company corrupts good character. Good company builds up character. The opposite is true, too. And so these pictures I actually took from our website. And so I see Sam in, in there and some other people. 
This is what life is meant to be. We're meant to do life together so that we can go out into the world and be a light and, be, and shine on other people. And so to wrap up, I'm going to ask two questions. One is how can we love one another? First one, prayer. Prayer is a powerful thing. Again, Josh is on vacation last week and this week, and I hope he has been shrouded in prayer by, it, by us. If anybody needs a vacation, it's him. That he can go and have a good time and relax and be rejuvenated so he can come back and love us. Matthew 7 talks about this wonderfully. You don't receive because you don't ask. Anybody here in need? Financial, emotional, spiritual, struggling? Part of our job is to say, hey, I'm struggling, I need help. And the next one is offer it. Sometimes people have the courage to say, hey, I need help. Sometimes people don't. And all you have to do is say, hey, I'm here, do you need anything? And that's the little bit of a reach they need to say, yes, I'm struggling here, here, and there. And we get to be God's hands and feet to each other. We spend time with one another in community groups. Random act of kindness. Hebrews 3.13 says, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that sin's deceitfulness does not influence your heart. And share what you have. I've got three stories to show up, to, to end with today. And I l- love the opportunity to teach. I present a lot, but teaching sermons is a little bit different, but a whole lot of fun. And one of the things that always happens when I prepare this is I get that gut punch, right? That God convicts me of something. And so on Father's Day, my wife blessed me with a new grill. It's wonderful. I've cooked on it more nights than I'd like to admit. And so I had this old grill, and I threw it up on Craigslist. And I said, okay, great. Maybe I can get a few cash for this and whatnot. And then I prepared this sermon. I'm like, oh, I know exactly what God's convicting me to do. And so we have a wonderful Facebook page called New Heights Bulletin Board, I think. Yes, I get a nod from Sam. New Heights Bulletin Board. And so I threw up there, I'm like, hey, I just got a new grill. I have this old grill. Anybody want it? And someone right away says, yes, I would love that. We just moved here a little bit ago from Georgia, and we accidentally left our grill there, and we don't have one, and we don't have any money to afford it because we just moved here. And you know what the amazing thing is? You know how much joy I got by just being able to help someone? This is God in us. This is the Imago Day. We get excited and joyful when we help each other out. They get excited and joyful because they were cared for. Because God used us. And because and God is very strong and blatant sometimes, he decided to give another example in my life. So on Friday, we got a new couch, and we had an old one, and the same thing. We were going to throw it up on Craigslist, and we said, you know what? There's probably someone in our church who needs it. And within 15 minutes, someone popped up and said, yes, we need one. They came over the next day, and they got it, and we found out they're a newlywed couple of two years. They're expecting the first child and didn't have a couch in their house. That was someone in here that we just didn't know they had a need. And God convicted me so that I could be a blessing to them. This is what Jesus is talking about. We all in here have needs, financial, physical, emotional how can we support each other so we can be a light in this dark, dark world? I'm calling, uh, or calling Jay Hayward out a little bit. If you guys don't know Jay, he's one of our elders. He's an amazing guy. And so the first person with the grill, I texted him and say, hey, I don't have a truck. They don't have a truck. I know someone in New Heights can have a truck and we can deliver this to those people. And I texted Jay because he's an elder, so he knows most of the people. He says, I've got it. I'll be there tomorrow. And I'm like, 
No, I meant someone, like, tell me who to do. He's like, no, I'm there. And this is one of the things I love about Jay. You ask for help, and he says, sure, I'm here. Next day, he showed up after work, 5.30, crossing from Fayetteville to Bentonville through all that traffic and said, I'm here to help. What type of unconditional, supportive love that is to say, hey, I need something. I got it. What if we were all like that? How different would our body be? Then this church would really shine in Northwest Arkansas where people say, wow, they live different. I want to understand what that's like. What's different about them? One last story about Jay. When him and Lana first got married, they said they didn't, the only thing they bought in their house was a sofa. Table, washer, and dryer, uh, bed, everything else was given to them by fellow people. We are a church of a lot of young people who are transplants here, like me, young with, uh, uh, freshly married with young kids. What if we could bless people like that? where people don't have to go out and do all these things because we have them at our house and say, here, take them. I don't use them anymore. I think of the Watkins. If you guys didn't see that email, you should read it. They just fostered a baby, 11, month, 11 days old today. They got it the day it came out of the NICU. They've never had kids. They don't have any baby stuff. For those of you who have babies, we spent thousands of dollars on ours. How much of it is sitting in the closet collecting dust? Let's bless them. Let's support them. Let's show them what the love of God is by saying, hey, we got this. You need a swing. You need a care. You need this. We have it. This is what Jesus is saying. Love your brothers and sisters well, and even more, I will judge you at the end on how well you do this. But we do that because we have been served by a God. We love because we have been loved by a God, and we give because we have been given so much by a gracious God. That's what's the difference between God's kingdom in the Pharisees' kingdom. We love because we understand what it's like. And because we're so transformed by it, we want to give it back. So as a community, I'm challenging all of you, how will you love your brothers and sisters? Do you need to go introduce yourself to someone sitting down the aisle from you? By the way, I did that after first service because I didn't know their name and I sat next to them for weeks. Called myself out on that. Do you have some baby stuff you can give to the Watsons? Do you have spare furniture that you don't need? Do you have funds? Are there somebody who wants to come to a community group but can't afford childcare? Maybe we can give them some money to, to come. Whatever it is, my hope, and this is selfish and I completely admit it, I hope that our Facebook page gets flooded with needs saying, hey, I need this, and hey, I've got this, anybody needs it. Because that's what we are. We are a community of believers living in a very dark world trying to do something different. So let's do exactly what Jesus says and love each other well. And so right now, I'm going to ask you a non-rhetorical question. How will you love your brothers and sisters? Write it down on your bulletin. Pull out your phone. Make a note. You know that little inkling? Maybe in your heart or in the back of your head that says, oh, you should do that? It's a good chance that's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I do this. If we become his hands and feet and love each other, we will change the area of Northwest Arkansas. But we can only do it if we are supported by one another and by God. So let's do that. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this a reminder, this challenge to be your hands and feet. That sometimes we forget about one another to go and evangelize and create disciples. And we forget that we just have basic needs. 
be it material or be it emotional and spiritual, let us be a body that is so in love with you and with each other that we are all taken care of. That we are so filled with love we can't help but go to work or, or the park or wherever we interact and just be different. For people to say, yeah, tell me about that. Let us love as you loved us and just love graciously with mercy and with overflow. Let us be your hands and feet to be people sitting in this room, to the rest of our congregation, and to all the believers in the world. Amen.